Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, discuss its plot and themes, and judge the actions of its characters at The Saga Thing. What have we got this time out, John? We're tackling the saga of Gunlaug Serpentang. This is one of those short but sweet sagas. Sweet? Yeah. I don't think I'd use the term sweet to describe it. It's just an expression. <laughs> there is a love affair. <laughs> a doomed love affair, yes. Just but hit yes. the button. In this episode, we follow the peregrinations of the warrior poet Gunlaug Serpentung, a man torn between his passion for Helga the Fair and a lust for travel. He'll make a name for himself in the courts of foreign royalty, but he'd better be careful. Helga's father isn't going to wait forever, and there's another man, Robin the Skald, who's got his eye on the lovely maiden. Will Gunlaug put aside his wandering ways and return in time to claim Helga as his bride, or will his rival, Robin the Skald, step in and claim her for himself? Join us as we cover our first saga romance, complete with love triangle and flaring passions. Who will claim the hand of Helga the Fair? Who will survive the resulting feud? And how does Helga feel about the whole thing? Find out as Saga Thing looks at the saga of Gunlaug Serpentung. See, this is going to be good. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying earlier, this is a relatively short saga. It comes in at a lean 10,121 words. Or 1.11 Hrovenkel sagas. <laughs> yeah, it's not a monster by any stretch. It's barely more than a Hrovenkel. <laughs> but it is a quick read, and it's got a bit of something for everyone. We've got romance, tragic love triangles, poetry, clever insults, dueling, treachery, and revenge. And Gunlaug's travels around the medieval north provide us with some pretty interesting glimpses into the major courts of 11th century Scandinavia. Exactly. Most people tend to focus on the tragic love affair of Gunlaug and Helga the Fair, but his interactions with the various kings and earls of medieval Scandinavia really make this saga for me. Now, this is the first of the sagas of the poets that we've covered, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Gunlaug's saga is included in a subgenre of the sagas of the Icelanders called the Poet Sagas, or the Skaldasover. Now, the idea of a subgenre suggests that each of the sagas in this group are more or less the same, but I don't think that's actually true. No, not at all. Uh, but for the sake of convenience, they're grouped together because they share similar characteristics and themes. Not surprisingly, the defining characteristic of each is that they're biographical tales of Iceland's most famous skalds, skalds or poets. Shocking, really. Skald sagas about skalds. I know. The, the genre is very smartly named. Uh, now, these poets tend to be somewhat troubled individuals. They're a restless group. They like to move around. And they've typically got a bad attitude and a sharp tongue, which results in conflict within their social group at home and in the foreign lands they visit. Uh, they're also pretty aggressive, which is probably why the poet sagas feature so much dueling. Yeah, and don't forget their strength. These guys may be somewhat romantic and, I guess, overly sensitive. Uh, that's what poets are wont to be, right? Uh, sure. But they're usually quite strong and more talented with a sword than their peers. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of an odd combination of characteristics when you think about it, if you aren't sort of familiar with them. Uh, they're foul-tempered romantics with a passion for wordplay and killing. <laughs> it sounds like the average saga protagonist to me. Well, not exactly. These guys distinguish themselves in two ways. Oh, do they? For, yes. <laughs> First, like their chivalric counterparts, they've usually got a love interest. Uh, a woman who's just out of their reach that inspires their great deeds and compositions. Uh, Gunlaug has Helga the Fair. Cormac has Steingard, etc. Well, sadly for these great poets, though, they can never quite seal the deal formally in marriage, and a rival usually swoops in and takes her for himself. As a result, most of these poet sagas end tragically and sometimes violently. Right. Now, the second thing the poets do to distinguish themselves from the average saga protagonist is reject Icelandic society and its cultural traditions. 
They usually leave home at a young age, seeking fame and fortune in foreign courts, not usually as soldiers, but as poets. But we do see Saga characters seeking fame and fortune in foreign lands quite often, and we've seen merchants and warriors of fortune already, right? Well, yeah, but in those stories, there's often a degree of tension or mistrust between the kings of foreign courts and the Icelander. In the case of the poets, they're in the courts seeking a productive relationship with the kings and earls of medieval Scandinavia. And England. Well, right, and England. I mean, I love it when the Icelanders make their way to Anglo-Saxon England. Oh, me too. But here's the weird part about the poet sagas and their service in foreign kingdoms. I mean, the authors are, aren't terribly interested in the poetry they compose for those foreign kings. I mean, we might get a snippet here or there. But the focus of the saga is always on the individual poet and his mm -hmm. struggle to make a name for himself and the trouble he gets himself into as a result. Yeah. The poetry we get tends to be mostly love poetry for his love interest and insult poetry composed about his rivals. True, but don't you think this is a reflection of the audience's interest? Uh, what do you mean? Well, the sagas are written for Icelanders who already have a kind of difficult relationship with Scandinavian authority. Would they really want to hear panegyric poetry about the kings who threaten their way of life? No, probably not. I guess that explains why the scenes in foreign courts tend to be so brief and sometimes superficial. I do wish, though, that they would dig in and give us a more detailed look at the inner workings of these foreign courts, especially the Anglo-Saxon ones, because that's what I love the most. Right. I mean, this week we're going to see uh, Athelred, the Unready's court, and yeah. it'd be great to know a little bit more about that. Yeah. But I guess I understand why the Icelandic audience would be most interested in the poet's time in Iceland, dealing with the Icelandic issues. There you go. Yeah. All right, now we could spend hours talking about the sagas of the poets and how they work and how they fit into the chronology of family saga writing and the particulars of skaldic poetry, but we're actually supposed to be talking about Gunnlaug's saga in this episode, right? That was the plan. Yeah. So let's get to it. Although it occurs to me that we've probably spoiled quite a bit of it already. Well, I mean, we covered the basic outline, but the particulars are quite fascinating. Okay, so where do we begin, John? Um, why don't we start by contradicting what we said already? <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> That's a nice way to start. Gunlaug and Helga. This saga begins by telling us that it's the story of not one warrior poet, but two. Gunlaug Serpentong and Hraven Onundersen, two of the great poets of their time. Right, but it's really Gunlaug's saga. I mean, he's got his name in the title. I don't remember seeing Hraven's name anywhere in there. Actually, some of the editions that have been published do call it the saga of Gunlaug Serpentong and Hraven the poet. Yeah, but those aren't very popular, so I don't really care. <laughs> That's a legitimate response. But. I don't think we really need to trust this author anyways. He also begins with a claim that this saga was written by Ari Thorgelson, who's famous as the author of the Islendingabolt, and he's probably the author of a number of other historically significant texts from the 12th century. Right, but he's almost certainly not the author of this saga. No, I mean, while attaching Ari's name to the saga might lend it some credibility, which is a great trick, Sure. we know that Ari lived from the later 11th to the mid-12th centuries, and our best guess is that Gunlaug's saga dates from the late 13th century. Ah, so the saga begins with one of those great genealogies that we love. Uh, this one links the saga to a number of other sagas, most notably Ale Saga and, of course, Henthor's Saga. But what's confusing is that this genealogy isn't about either of the warrior poets. Instead, it's the family of Thorstein Aelson, the son of Ale Scholar mm -hmm. Grimson, and more importantly for this story, the father of Helga the Fair. Well, Helga's parentage is worth a look. Her mother is Jofrid Gunnar's daughter, who our more obsessive listeners will remember from the end of Henthor's saga. Do we have obsessive listeners already? Well, I can only hope. Okay. Uh, <laughs> At least one out uh, there Jofrid's, Well, there's got to be one. Someone out there with a pen and pencil and paper making notes feverishly. Uh, 
in that saga, Yolfred's marriage to Thorod Tungu Odson uh, ends the cycle of violence between two chieftains. But her husband, her first husband, later disappeared in Norway. So she's now remarried to Thorstein Eilson, whose family tree has this odd duality. Everyone in the clan is either remarkably good-looking or remarkably ugly. And which side is Thorstein on? Oh, he's definitely on the good-looking side of the family. Good for him. The, the saga says he's a, quote, handsome man with white blonde hair and fine, piercing eyes. Oh, so he's nothing like his father, then. Well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Jofrid and Thorstein have several sons, and she's pregnant again when a Norwegian trader named Bergfinn comes to stay with Thorstein for the winter. Now, Bergfinn's conveniently interested in dreams, and one day, while the two men are working, Bergfinn asks Thorstein to tell him about a vivid dream that he's just had. Thorstein thinks dreams are nonsense, but he goes ahead and describes his dream to Bergfinn anyways. Oh, it's one of these. Yeah. So this dream is of two eagles fighting over a swan. The eagles kill one another after a long battle, and the swan is grief-stricken. But then a hawk conveniently flies in and flies away with the swan. Okay, so that seems straightforward enough. The eagles represent Norway and Denmark, the swan must be Iceland, and the hawk represents some other kind no, of country. No, 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 no. I don't no. know what you're doing. Okay. So the swan represents the natural world. The hawk is the careful <laughs> no. farmer. What? No. No. Did you read the saga, John? All right. I'll try it again. The <laughs> swan is the beautiful girl that Yofred is about to give birth to. The yeah. eagles represent two noble suitors who will kill each other fighting over the girl. Yeah. And the hawk is a third suitor who will marry the girl when the eagles are in their graves. Did you take a course in dream interpretation? See, this is exactly the, why the literary <laughs> conceit of dream interpretation can be so frustrating. I understand the desire to impose some kind of narrative causality on the universe, but it usually ends up being so arbitrary. It's like every dream interpreter has this Sherlock Holmes-level deductive capabilities. Well, I mean, the author does offer us an alternate interpretation. Thorstein says it's probably something to do with the wind directions. But that's clearly just ridiculous. Thorstein's <laughs> yeah, making fun is. of the idea of dream interpretation. And rightly so. Or and maybe rightly not. so, yes. Well, anyway, he may not like the idea, but he definitely believes Bergfinn's prophecy. Mm -hmm. Before he leaves for the Althing that summer, he orders his wife to expose their unborn child, if it's a girl. Now, we actually haven't come across an exposure of a child yet in these podcasts, have we? Uh, no, that's true. Uh, do you want to explain it? Oh, yeah, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, exposure meant leaving a child out in the wilderness to die, whether by predator animals or from the elements. It's generally pretty clear from context that no one actually approved of doing it, but it might happen for a number of reasons. Too many mouths to feed or a birth defect that would make the child's survival unlikely. And In this saga, the author says, quote, When the country was completely heathen, it was something of a custom for poor men with many dependent relatives to have their children exposed. Even so, it was always considered a bad thing to do. <laughs> well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, this saga actually shows one of the harsher truths of the exposure practice. Uh, Carol Clover and Jenny Jawkins have both argued that female infants were exposed more often than males, which mm -hmm. may have led to a relative shortage of women in pagan-era Iceland. That's pretty grim, actually. Yeah, but I guess it speaks to the reality of life in that period. Mm -hmm. I mean, rather than a romantic land of freedom, for the majority of settlers, life could be just hard enough that some had to seriously consider exposing a female child just because she wouldn't grow up and contribute enough to the farm to make the investment in feeding her the whole time worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever the exact circumstances, I doubt these decisions were made lightly. Right. Well, I mean, the good news in this case uh, is that Yolfred's not having any of her husband's nonsense. So when she gives birth to a baby girl, she asks a loyal shepherd to carry the child to Thorstein's sister Thorgird's house. Uh, Thorgird's married to the wealthy chieftain Olaf Peacock, 
so an extra kid won't be a hardship financially for her. Olaf and Thergird are one of Saga Literature's power couples. They're really cool, um, but they're just getting an extended cameo here. And so, unfortunately, they're not going to be eligible for Thingman this time around. Right, I and mean, we'll see them again uh, in a number of other sagas. Uh, Lockstala Saga, Ale Saga. Uh, so we'll have our shot at them. Yeah. Now, Helga, this baby girl, spends about six years with them. But the saga jumps ahead to a feast thrown by Olaf, and Thorstein is in attendance. He's sitting there with um, Thorgird, and he notices the daughters of Thorgird and Olaf. And he says that the beautiful Helga doesn't look much like Olaf at all. And then his sister Thorgird tells him that, in fact, Helga is his own hidden daughter. Yeah, and surprisingly, Thorstein's actually okay with this. Yeah. Uh, he acknowledges that he was wrong, and he thanks Thorgird. He says, you two have smoothed over my stupidity well enough. Uh, and, of course, Helga rides home with her father and rejoins the family at Borg. That's actually the end of Thorgrid and Olaf in this story. Uh, but they'll be showing up in a lot of future episodes. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, the saga switches over to the family of another chieftain in the area named Ilugi the Black. You might, mm -hmm. uh, our obsessed fans, might remember him from the <laughs> Erbigir saga episode. He had a lawsuit against Snorri the Gothi. Now, Ilugi has many children, but his two sons, Hermund and Gunlag, are the ones who are going to have an important role in this saga. Mm -hmm. Gunlag more than Hermund. Gunlog is big and strong, but he's got an ugly nose and a reputation as a talented but sharp-tongued poet. An ugly nose? Yeah. That's not really specific. Right. Well, Hermund is more popular, and he's better looking, and is, he's well, widely regarded as likely heir to Ilugi's chieftaincy. Right, and of course regular listeners will know that the local gossip is right in this case. Uh, this is the same Hermund who grows up to be one of the corrupt chieftains in Bondamana Saga. Right, and uh, is slain by a an elf shot. Uh, uh, by a heart attack, I believe you'll find. Well, I think the two are one and the same, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Go to our poll on uh, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com and, and let us know which one you think it was. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyways, Hermund's got a very minor role in this saga, but he is represented in a much kinder light. Yeah. Uh, but his brother is another one of these difficult young men that we see so often in these stories. He doesn't get along well with his father, and at the age of 12... He tries to steal supplies from his father to take abroad with him. Now, this is shaping up to be a repeat of Bondamana Saga, isn't it? I mean, Odd mm -hmm. did basically the same thing when he was 12. Well, the difference is that Ilugi is a little more vigilant than Odd's father was, and he catches Gunlag in the act. He won't let Gunlag take the supplies, so instead Gunlag leaves to study law with their neighbor Thorstein Eilson at Borg for a year. Briefly in that year, Gunlag and Thorstein's daughter Helga become close friends, as it were. And they spend a lot of time playing board games together. Mm -hmm. They're about the same age, and already everyone... Well, wait, what is... Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing. This is the just... saga. There's nothing untoward going on no, between these I'm children. I'm just clearing my throat. It would be totally oh, inappropriate dear. for any kind of liaison to occur. But they are about the same age. And everyone can see that Helga is going to be a rare beauty. I mean, her father named her Helga the Fair, so I guess she's got to live up to that. Fair enough. So... So Gunlog gets Thorstein to show him the legal formula for betrothing himself to a woman. And then he suggests practicing by betrothing himself to Helga. Of course he does. Right. But Thorstein's not stupid. And he insists that everyone present know that this is practice only and that it will be, quote, as if this had not been said. Yeah, I applaud that touch, actually. It's, it's quite nice, nice to see someone who's not a fool in these circumstances. Yeah. Uh, getting someone to commit themselves legally with a practice session is an old trick in the sagas. Mm -hmm. Um 
Uh, some people will know about uh, Gunnar tricking Hrut in Njal Saga this way. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the author playing with that trope and then rejecting it. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that Gunlog still means it when he claims mm-hmm. Helga's hand, but Thorstein's made sure that everyone knows that he's not obligating himself or his daughter to this match. Yeah. Uh, after a few years, uh, Gunlog grows into a promising young man and involves himself in protecting his family's interests and developing a reputation as a poet. When he turns 18, he asks his father to buy him a share in a ship, and Elugi does. But while the ship is being prepared, Gunlag kind of wanders over to Borg to spend a little more time with Helga. After some preamble, he asks Thorstein to accept his suit for Helga's hand. Uh, but Thorstein thinks Gunlag's a bit flighty, understandably. <laughs> and he doesn't think much of him as a prospect for Helga. Thorstein calls him an Orathenman, which means an unresolved or undetermined man. I actually prefer Gwyn Jones's definition. What does he say? He says, shilly-shallying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the shilly-shallying man. Yeah. And I think that Thorstein has a point. Gunnog is always shilly-shallying about. I'm not going to support that term, but uh, I tend to agree otherwise. Uh, well, uh, why do you Why do you think so? For starters, remember that Gunnog was basically a runaway when he lived mm-hmm. with Thorstein and learned law from him. And now, Gunnog's been begging to go overseas for years. And when he finally gets a spot on a ship, he wanders off and proposes marriage to Helga while they're prepping the ship. He keep on shilly-shallying throughout this saga, which is going to cause a lot of trouble down the line. Please tell me it's the last time you're going to say shilly-shally. I'm not sure. I can't promise that. <laughs> uh, well, when Thorstein resists the proposal, Gunlog's first response is to insult him and then to say that there aren't many farmers who would be safe to turn down a marriage bond with me. He's coming off as a snot-nosed punk here, I think. I like that Thorstein's totally unimpressed by Gunlog's hot air. Mm -hmm. He tells him to save his nonsense for the loser hill people in Gunlog's district. (laughs) (laughs) And he says it's not going to fly down here in the marshlands. (laughs) One of the few times that people can brag about being from the marshlands. Sure. (laughs) A line like that reminds you that Thorstein is the son of the greatest warrior poet, Eilskala Grimson. Yeah. Uh, And of course, Gunlog then goes off and tattles to his dad about it. (laughs) Ilugi and Thorstein eventually come to an agreement that Gunlag and Helga will be provisionally betrothed to one another. But if Gunlag doesn't come back to Iceland in three years' time, Helga will be free to marry someone else. It's an unusual agreement, and it seems to speak mm-hmm. to what we were saying earlier. Thorstein just thinks that Gunlag's an unreliable shilly-shallier. <laughs> and so he's t- <laughs> I'm going to start charging you a quarter every time you say that. I can afford it. He's... <laughs> <laughs> And he's testing Gunlog's commitment to Helga. Right, but really he's testing whether this blowhard kid has the patience to commit to anything at all. You've got a real problem with Gunlog, don't you? He's not an easy guy to like. Well, that's the point. I mean, I'll grant that his talent with poetry usually wins him friends in the long run, which incidentally is the theme of the next section of the saga. Ah, nice segue. Thank you. Gunlog, the court poet. So, Gunlaug and a fellow traveler named Alvun Halterdog sail with a merchant to Norway. That name always makes me laugh. What, Alvun Halterdog? Yeah, I don't know what that's all about, but it's we'll a We'll get to that in the nicknames. Yeah. Uh, in Norway, they visit the court of Earl Eric Halkonnesen. Gunlaug introduces himself, and Earl Eric's follower, who happens to be the beautiful Helga's brother, Skuli Thorstensen. Are you so- serious? I did not make that connection. Is yeah, that her yeah, brother? Yeah, that's her brother. Wow, that adds a whole other layer for me that I didn't realize was there. <laughs> oh, yes, quite deep. I just uh, thought he was this advisor guy. Oh, yeah, no, 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 he's there. Uh, I should pay closer attention. Because he's, he's, the, he's, he, 
identifies Gunlaug as his foster brother. Yeah, I guess he, maybe I should read closer. There you go. Uh, so Schooley fills the Earl in on Gunlaug's family connections. Uh, and the whole thing is really going quite well so far. Yeah, but then the Earl notices that Gunlaug's leaking blood. <laughs> He's leaking blood and pus from his boot. Well. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, who knows where that came from. Uh, but understandably, he asks him what's going on there. And Gunlaug explains that he's got a boil on his instep, but that, uh, quote, one mustn't limp while both legs are the same length. Okay, see, now that's a line that makes me like Gunlaug a little bit. Yeah, well, sure. But the Earl's followers think Gunlaug's just being cocky, and one of them mutters something about testing Gunlaug's worth. Gunlaug hears him and lashes out with a verse that insults the man, calling him a horrible, untrustworthy, evil, black-souled man. Ouch. Yeah, it gets a little bit worse. This is not really a good first impression, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's not how you go into an Earl's court. Fair enough. Um, when the Earl predicts that Gunlog won't see another 18 years of life due to his tongue, Gunlog mutters that Eric's breath would be better spent praying for himself. Now, the Earl says, in essence, what was that? And <laughs> Gunlog repeats it louder. See, that's a, that's a great bit of comedy right there. Yeah. Uh, but... When Gunlog adds an insult about the Earl's father's embarrassing death while hiding in a pigsty, mm-hmm. it nearly gets Gunlog killed, and you can kind of see why. Yeah, I love this moment, <laughs> mostly because the story behind it is also so interesting. Right. Well, so most of the poetry Gunlog composes for the kings requires a detailed knowledge of Scandinavian and English history to get what's going on. Yeah, and if you don't know, then the subtle jokes, insults, or praise of the poem can be lost. In this case, he's referring to a story that we know about Eric's father, King Haukon Sigurdsson, from the saga of Olaf Tryggvason in Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla. Do you mind if I tell this one real quick? Yes, but you're going to anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> okay, so, back in 900... <laughs> back in 995, King Haukon found himself hiding in a local pigsty with one of his slaves... A man named Thormoth Kark. And why was he hiding in a pigsty? Well, this is my favorite part. You see, the farmers in the region had recently rebelled against him and were trying to kill him. There was probably a fair bit of oppression going on, but Snorri tells us that the straw that broke the camel's back was when Hauken tried to force an influential farmer named Orm to lend him his wife Gudrun, a beautiful woman, for maybe an evening or two. Uh, and by lend him you mean the wife, you mean... I think he wanted to have a role in the proverbial hay with her. I see. Just borrow her. Uh (laughs) So Orm put out a call to arms, and all the men of the district gathered together to put an end to Hauken's tyranny. At the same time, Olaf Tryggvason had arrived to conquer and convert Norway. Now, he'd already slain Hauken's son, Erland, and was now looking for Hauken to finish the conversion project. Now, as you can see, Hauken had good reason to seek the comfort of the pigsty. So how'd things turn out for him? Not well, of course. Mm. Olaf actually came to that very farm and stood on a boulder near the pigsty and said that he'd reward the man who killed Hauken handsomely. <laughs> so that puts Kark in a good spot to change his fortunes, huh? Well, one would think so, but he seems to be more afraid of being found by Olaf at the moment. And when Hauken has a bad dream that night, still hiding in the pigsty, he starts making some noises. Kark freaks out and slices Hauken's throat. <laughs> oh, God. The loyal companion. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he does try to take advantage of the opportunity. He cuts Hauken's head clean off after that, and then he carries it to Olaf the next day. So now he's hoping to claim the reward. Yeah, yeah. But he actually tells the whole story as it happened, oh. which reveals him both as a coward and a traitor. Uh-huh. And does he get the reward? 
Absolutely not. Olaf not. has him led away and <laughs> beheaded. It's really a sad end for both Hauken and Kark. Uh, but a delightful one for us. <laughs> uh, so where's Eric during all this? He's clearly at the head of the Norwegian state by the time of Gunnlaug's visit. Yeah, he is. But that's after a lengthy exile in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Eric and his brother Svein eventually team up with the king of Sweden, uh, Svein Forkbeard, the father of Knut the Great, in the year 1000, and they defeat Olaf at the Battle of Svolder. It's really Svein's victory, though, and Eric and Svein are installed as governors of Norway and rule in Svein's name. That's a fun little digression. I know. It's little things like this that make this saga so cool. Uh, can we get back to Gunnlaug? <laughs> yeah, that guy. Who is he? <laughs> okay, so how does Eric take this insult from Gunnlaug? Uh, not well at all, unsurprisingly. <laughs> uh, but Gunnlaug is saved when Skuli steps in and convinces Earl Eric to let Gunnlaug go, but he does banish him from Norway forever. And so as quickly as he arrived, Gunnlaug jumps on the first ship heading out, which happens to be going to England. Ah, good. It's been a while since we visited England. Yeah, but this is sort of a weird trip to England. The saga <laughs> author has his own take on English politics, starting with his characterization of King Athelred as a good king. This is Athelred the Unready we're talking about, right? Yep. Uh, Athelred Strange. and Gunnlaug actually get along pretty well, with Gunnlaug reciting poetry, lionizing Athelred, and becoming one of the king's men. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It is a little bit. And you would you would think that a, a saga author living in the 13th century would know that Ethelred was not a very good king. Right. And yet it's not clear within the text that the poetry, the praises are meant ironically. And even the narrator calls Ethelred a good king. So yeah. uh, apparently this is just sort of a blind spot of the author. Anyway, but Gunlog manages to get himself into trouble anyway. Uh, this time he does it by unwisely lending money to a local thug and berserker named Thororm. Uh, it's nice to have a berserker back. Yeah, it is. Uh, although it's not the kind of person you'd lend money to. It's really fascinating to me that, that Anglo-Saxon England in this saga appears to be chock full of Scandinavians. Well, I mean, we're at the height of the Dane law at this time. Right? We're only a, a few years away historically from the point at which England actually was conquered by Scandinavian kings. Sven and his son Canute are going to come in and take over the place. Mm-hmm. And it's really going to become part of that North Sea Empire for a time. Uh, and of course, Gunnlaug demands the money back. And when Thorarm refuses, Gunnlaug challenges him to a duel. This saga is known in part for its duels, and we're probably going to put together a saga brief really soon on dueling. Mm-hmm. The author actually includes some nice historical details about the length of time before the duel and the conduct of the duel itself, all of which is built from this assumption that the customs governing duels were followed in Danelaw, England. But there's an important superna- supernatural detail as well. Athelred tells Gunnlaug that Thororm can blunt any sword just by looking at it. Yeah, I actually thought when he said that that he was joking. I was going to include that in notable witticisms, and then I realized, no, he's serious. It's, yeah, he's quite serious. <laughs> um, so on the king's advice, Gunlaug shows Thorarm one sword before the duel, but fights with a different one. Now, Thorarm's first blow cuts away most of Gunlaug's shield, but he doesn't bother to defend himself against Gunlaug's supposedly blunted sword, so Gunlaug chops him down dead with one blow. And this fight goes a long way toward making Gunlaug's reputation. And when he leaves England, Ethelred asks him to stop by again, for friendship's sake. Right. It's worth noting that uh, Gunnlaug doesn't give back the sword either. He keeps the sword that Ethelred gave him. Yeah, why would you give it Well, sure. Uh, now, at this point... Especially to Ethelred. Right. Right, exactly. What's he going to do? (laughs) He's going to pay you money to go away? (laughs) He's going to say, hey, I was unprepared for that. (laughs) Uh, Now, at this point, Gunnlaug embarks on a kind of North Sea tour. He stops in Ireland, in the Orkneys, and in Sweden. And at each stop, he offers praise poems to the local ruler and is rewarded handsomely. 
Uh, and at one point, after a dispute between followers of two different rulers leads him to praise both the Orkney's Earl Sigurd and the Norwegian Earl Eric, word gets back to Eric and he even gets his exile lifted. Gunlaug versus Frofin the Skald. And meanwhile, back in Iceland, where all things are important, mm -hmm. a third family has been introduced into the story. A chieftain named Onund, his wife Gerni Gnupsdotter, and their sons Hrafn, Thorin, and Eindridi. Although I'm not sure why they introduced the last two guys, because they're not terribly important. No, it's true. Uh, and I can't <laughs> believe that we're waiting, that we've had to wait this long in the story to get to Hrafn. Uh, well, it's further proof that his name doesn't belong anywhere near the title fair of enough. the saga. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, now, Hrafn and his brothers come from a very well-connected family. Their father's a chieftain, and their first cousin, Skafti, is the law speaker for all of Iceland. There's no more prominent law speaker than Skafti Thoradsson. True. Uh, in this saga, though, Hrafn's the center of attention. Mm -hmm. He's well thought of by everyone, he's a poet, he's a good-looking guy, and he's very, very interested in Helga. Yeah, we'll get to that. At the moment, Hrafn is in the court of the Swedish king Olaf at Uppsala. When Gunnlaug arrives there, the two meet and hit it off at first. At first. <laughs> so ominous. <clears throat> at the end of the Uppsala assembly, both Gunnlaug and Hrafn want to recite praise poems for King Olaf, but they both want to go first. Right, now, Olaf seems to be a bit of a troublemaker in his own right at this point. He picks Gunnlaug to go first, but then he asks Hraven to review Gunnlaug's poem in Gunnlaug's presence. Right, right. Uh, which is just, you just know this is oil on the fire. Well, he's already seen them bickering with each other. Right, exactly. Uh, Hraven calls the poem well-composed but ostentatious and a bit ungainly and stilted, like Gunnlaug's temperament. <laughs> Them's fighting words. <laughs> well, you know how high-strung artistic types can be. Yeah, yeah. Now, Gunnlaug, uh, Gunnlaug's just as bad. When Hraven recites his poem, Gunnlaug says, It's handsome, like Hraven but there's not much more to either of them. <laughs> now, the, the only reason they don't kill each other right there is that they're in the king's presence. Mm -hmm. There's also the issue we saw briefly in Erbigisaga. Icelanders don't like to be seen fighting one another in front of other Scandinavians. Right, no, absolutely true. So they both agree to settle the matter some other time, and they go their separate ways. Now, Gunnlaug heads back to England to fulfill his promise to visit Athelred once more which means he's cutting it close against his deadline for getting back to Iceland and to Helga. Yeah, and meanwhile, Hraven travels straight back to Iceland, having been insulted by Gunnlaug. Right. And he and his cousin Skapti visit Thorstein's booth at the Althing, in the third year of Gunnlaug's absence, mm -hmm. mind you. And Hraven presses a suit for Helga's hand immediately. Thorstein offers to consider the matter if Gunnlaug hasn't returned to Iceland by the next Althing. Mm -hmm. And when well, it's given him plenty of time to come back, I think. Right, no, absolutely. Now, when Gunnlaug's return is delayed and the all thing comes around again, Hraven and Thorstein agree to hold the marriage that following winter. Right. Now, in that section of the narrative concludes by noting that Helga is not happy about the arrangement. Well, can you blame her? She's being treated like a prize her father gets to give away to the best prospect, but her heart's still with Gunnlaug. Right. Unfortunately, her beloved Gunnlaug seems to have lost track of time a little bit. <laughs> he spends that first winter with Athelred, but then another summer and winter pass while Gunnlaug waits with Athelred to repel a Danish invasion that never actually well, materializes. Hold on a second, though. Uh -huh. you're, you're making it sound like Gunnlaug like, willingly stays. But I, if I remember correctly, Ethelred tells him that he can't leave because yeah, well, of the Danish invasion. And if I remember correctly, the phrasing is, uh, it is inappropriate, since you are my follower, for you to leave when this invasion threatens. Sounds like a king telling him, you stay because you're my servant. But this is Gunnlaug. 
What have we seen him do in every other court he's visited? This is a guy who will piddle in the punch bowl anytime he wants to. No, he doesn't just piddle in the punch bowl all the time, John. Uh He shilly shallies. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Am I right or am I right? You're absolutely right. Um, Or am I right? There's absolutely no reason for Gunlab to suddenly get amenable at this point in the narrative. I don't, uh, honestly, I don't think he has a choice. I well, think. And it should be when said. When the king that, says, you, you've got to stay, mm-hmm. I think he's probably threatening him with death or imprisonment if he leaves. Right. And in fairness, Athelred's right to be worried. Uh, the Danish leader that he's worried about invading is Knut Svensson. And students of English history will know that he actually is going to invade England in a few years' time. Yeah. Not just yet, though. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Gunlog's delay sets up Robin's wedding to Helga. Yeah. And he's still not done procrastinating. He no. then stops I by... I call it shilly-shallying, remember? Right, well, absolutely. Uh, he's going to stop by Norway for a bro hug with Earl Eric, and then he has to catch a ride back to Iceland. <laughs> Did you say bro hug? Yeah. Okay, I'm just checking. <laughs> anyway. Ridiculous. He has to get I can't la- say shilly-shallying, but you can say bro hug? It is a bro hug. He just goes back so they can congratulate each other on being good friends again. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he has to get on the last ship heading out to Iceland before that winter. Gunlaug comes home. Too late. Now, this is a great crossover moment, Mm -hmm. because that ship is piloted by Halfred Troublesome Poet, whose own saga is also of the warrior poet type. Mm -hmm. The two of them are quite friendly with one another, and and Halfred fills him in on the impending nuptials of Hraven and Helga. He also warns him that Hraven is not a man to be trifled with. And so they land in Iceland two weeks before winter. Yeah, and this is another one of those moments when I really have to question Gunlaug's commitment to the whole star-crossed lover thing. <laughs> You'd think he'd be in something of a rush to stop the wedding, or at least to see Helga, but no. Instead, he gets involved in a wrestling contest with a local man named Thord, and twists his ankle during the match. That's what happens when you shilly-shally about all Absolutely. the time. Absolutely. Piddling in the punch bowl. <laughs> That's and not then when he finally <laughs> does get home to his father's farm... His ankle is too badly hurt for him to do anything about the wedding before it happens. It's kind of pathetic. Oh, you're such a bitter man, John. (laughs) (laughs) So, the wedding happens without a hitch. But when Helga learns that Gunlag was in Iceland at the time that she got married, she decides that this means her father and Hraven tricked her, and she becomes quite cold and angry towards Hraven. And the author tells us quite explicitly that there wasn't much intimacy between them. Which is I'm so... not sure what he means by that. Well, I, I, I'm quite sure I know what he means by that. Uh, <laughs> it means it means Robin sleeping on the couch. Do they have couches? <laughs> <laughs> He's sleeping on the other bench. <laughs> That's more like it. Uh, so Goodlaug keeps his distance till the following year when another wedding is arranged in the area and all the parties are invited. Gunlaug int- attends at his father's insistence, but when he and Helga see each other, they both realize that the other still loves them. It's sort of in their eyes in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gunlaug speaks a couple of verses to her and then rushes off to confront Robin. Now, speaking verses to another man's wife is a pretty serious offense. Um, in fact, the, uh, the, the Gragas, the, the law codes, have stuff about mm-hmm. uh, poetry, whether yeah. it's insulting poetry or it's love poetry to another man's wife yeah. or to a, a father's daughter who's uh, unclaimed as yet. Uh, but anyways, Gunlag's past caring about all of that, and he and Robin begin arguing by means of a poetry slam contest. <laughs> uh, their fathers eventually have to arrive to separate these. Are you cracking fierce, up your own line? <laughs> these fierce poets <laughs> battling back and forth. I like the description ro- of it. 
Yeah, it's pretty funny. Anyway, nothing is nothing specific is said about their confrontation until the following summer's all thing. It's not entirely true. I mean, oh, the author on. does tell us that Helga and Robin never again enjoy intimacy as a couple after that first confrontation. <laughs> well, okay, but it's not like they were burning up the bedsheets before that. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So, at the all thing, Gunlog formally challenges Robin to a mm-hmm. duel on a small island in the Axewater River. That has served as the official ground for sanctioned duels. Mm-hmm. Profin agrees, and since the law says that the duel is legal under these circumstances, their families really can't stop it. Mm-hmm. And after the required three days delay, the two men and their seconds take their places on the island. Now, we'll go into this whole thing in more detail in the saga brief on dueling, if and when we finally get to it. But seconds were extremely important in the duel because their job was to hold shields to protect the combatants. Gunlaug's second is going to be his brother Hermund. And Robbins is his cousin, Sverting Goatbjornsson. <laughs> what a nice name. Uh, we'll get to him in nicknames. Uh, in this case, the duel isn't necessarily to the death. The first man to be wounded will forfeit three marks of silver and end the duel. It's all very civilized, but things don't go well for either man. Mm-hmm. As the challenge party, Profin gets the first swing. But his sword breaks on Hermann's upheld shield, and the blade nicks Gunlog's cheek as it flies past. Both men immediately claim victory. Gunlog is technically wounded, but Hrofin is weaponless and can't continue the fight. Yeah, I have to say that while Gunlog is bleeding, it's a pretty lame ending to the duel. But technically, according to the custom, right. he's the first to bleed. Right. So if that was the rules of the engagement, mm-hmm. though uh, a technicality, it's still... Well, the saga author goes out of, its way, out of his way to have us understand that it is a technicality, right? That it's just yeah. a scratch. It's pretty lame. Uh, now, the two men have to be separated, and no one can agree on the outcome, so there is no settlement. Uh, before they can set up another fight, a new law is passed by the Law Council that outlaws all dueling, which actually makes Gunlaug and Robin's duel the last legal duel fought in Iceland. Now, this maybe has some history to back it up. The dueling was indeed outlawed in 1006 in Iceland. Yeah, obviously both men are furious, uh, but they return to their homes without breaking the law. But they're not going to let it go, either. Hrofin rides with a dozen men to Gunlaug's farm and catches him in bed. Mm-hmm. Gunlaug grabs his weapons. Hrofin isn't there to fight, though. Instead, he points out that dueling isn't outlawed in Norway. And he suggests that they both travel there in the following summer and finish what they started. Mm-hmm. Now, they agree on the plan and part amicably, which is kind of weird to me. Now, I love this conversation because Gunlaug is just so delighted by the idea. Uh, he does everything but pump Robin's hand up and down. He's, he says, well spoken, man. I accept a proposal with pleasure. <laughs> and now, Robin, you may have whatever hospitality you like. Yeah, and Robin's just as polite, thanking him very kindly for the offer before riding away. Mm-hmm. They both just seem so genuinely tickled about having another chance to kill each other. Whereas in other sagas, <laughs> they would just kill each other. Right, exactly. Right there on the spot, right? They, like, if you, if you find the, the guy... your enemy in bed, well, yeah. more power to you. You put a spear through him and stick him to the exactly. to the bed. That's how you do it. Uh, but this is no Gizli. The final battle. Eventually. So Hraven gets his ship together quickly and heads directly to Norway, along with his cousins, Grimm and Olaf. They spend an entire winter waiting for Gunlaug to show up, but unsurprisingly, Gunlaug's running late. Uh, in fact, he and his cousin Thorkel the Black are off in the Orkneys, raiding with Earl Sigurd for an entire year. I just can't believe this guy. He's just wandering all over the place again. It's it's like he has no idea do. that anyone is waiting for him anywhere. No. I mean, why? what does Helga see in this guy anyway? I agree. 
He uh, was good at uh, Neftoffel or something. That's <laughs> exactly what it is. Oh, uh, he's such a good strategist. So after a year, an entire year, Gunlaug finally shows up in Norway. I, I'm shocked that Robin has the patience to wait for him. Well, he hasn't. Anyway, uh, after a year, Gunlaug <laughs> does finally arrive in Norway. Yeah, but his old friend Earl Eric confronts him about the proposed duel, which he's heard about, and he forbids Gunlaug to fight Robin. Mm-hmm. And Gunlaug accepts that Eric's word goes in Norway, and he spends another winter at Eric's court. Another winter. I just want to point that yeah, out. Yeah, another delay. And it isn't until the following spring that anything finally happens to motivate him. Oh, right, the play fighting. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Gunlaug is actually out walking when he finds two men in a circle of onlookers pretending to be Gunlaug and Raven and fighting each other with weak, mincing blows. Uh, it's... <laughs> It's some kind of uh, play that's being played right. for the public. Now, everyone enjo- is enjoying a good laugh about how Icelanders are weak men who don't follow through on their promises. Now, those are serious words in a saga. Uh, honor is obviously at stake here, but so is national pride. Definitely, definitely. It's it's hard to imagine an Icelandic audience feeling that there'd been any other option open to Gunlag at this point. Mm-hmm. He has to fight Hraven, regardless of his promise to the Earl. Yeah, but the problem is he's still got to find Hraven. Robin is understandably tired of waiting for Gunlaug to show, and he's wandered off to Sweden. Gunlaug sets off after him with a party of men, arriving at one farm after another, but always just missing Robin's party. So hard to kill each other in these it days. It really is. He finally catches up to Robin at a place called Glepnisvedr, a stretch of land between two lakes with a small headland that presumably will work as a dueling ground. Now, both sides are eager to get on with the fight, but mm-hmm. this isn't going to be a formal duel like the one at the All Thing. This is a fight to the death with no real rules. <clears throat> and Robin's two cousins and Gunlaug's kinsman, Thorkel the Black, announce that they intend to get in on the action as well. Gunlaug mm-hmm. immediately rushes Robin's cousins while Thorkel and Robin face off. See, it's almost too predictable that Gunlaug and Robin are going to have to fight each other. Well, they did say they're going to fight each other. Well, so right. I guess we, we expected it. So are the others just there to rack up a body count? Well, if they are, good for them. This is... <laughs> This is Saga thing, and we need a body count. Fair enough. Uh, we're almost done with this thing, and these are the first killings we've had. Yes. Thank you, Thorkel, Grimm, and Olaf, for laying down <laughs> your lives for the requirements of our bloodthirsty narrative. Yeah, so, yes, with <laughs> the various cousins killed, Gunlaug and Robin face off. And they go at it for a while, but Gunlaug's using the excellent sword he got as a gift from Ethelred. And it's so sharp that an unblocked blow cuts off Robin's leg. Mm. Now, Hroffen manages to get to a tree stump and balances the stump of his leg on it, which is a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. He's put his stump on a stump. Oh, my God. Oh. But Gunlog hesitates. <laughs> he doesn't want to be accused of fighting a wounded man. Right. Now, this is actually one of my personal fascinations with the sagas. Uh, the word Gunlog uses to describe Hroffen here is Oviger which literally translates as unable uh, or disabled. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, like many Icelandic words, Oviger is rendered by reversing the positive adjective Uyghur, and apparently suggests a certain binary understanding. One is either able to fight, or one is not. But on any number of occasions, people described as Oviger at one point in a text are later shown to be fully able to fight despite their injury, and in some cases, like Onan Treleg in Greta's saga, uh, they actually find ways to take advantage of their in- injuries to innovate new fighting strategies. In other words? so Well, so in other words, Gunlaug should watch out, because Hraven's not necessarily out of the fight. Oh, definitely not. So Hraven takes advantage of this pause to ask for a drink of water. 
This is a delaying tactic that we see in other one-on-one fights in the sagas. Gunlog exacts a promise that Robin won't try anything sneaky, and he brings him a drink of water in the only bucket-shaped object he's got. His helmet. See, see, this is what I'm talking about. In his helmet? Yeah. Yeah, his helmet. Oh, now, God. You would think that he that that Gunlaw could just wait for this guy to bleed out. You just cut off his leg. I'm pretty sure an artery was severed somewhere in there. Or and here's an Be idea: patient. say, "All right, throw me your helmet, exactly, and I'll get you some water." <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you should do. I don't know, but you know, Gunlaw's a very honorable individual, I guess. Right, right. And so he walks over with his helmet full of water and leans his head down while he gives it to Robin. Smart move. Yeah. Sure enough, Robin lashes out with his sword and badly wounds Gunlog's head, mm-hmm. saying that he can't stand does. the he can't stand the thought of Gunlog ever being with Helga. Mm-hmm. I guess he really loves her, or he just doesn't want Gunlog to be with her. Right, or he's really spiteful. Uh, yeah, I think it's more spite than love, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. So Gunlog kills Robin, justifiably so at that moment, but Gunlog's still suffering from this head wound, mm-hmm. and ultimately his friends can't save his life, and he dies three days later. I'm not going to say good riddance. But it's certainly, he, you can't say that he didn't have chances not to die. He's sort of done everything <laughs> wrong that he possibly could leading up to this. That's one way of putting it. Resolution with Bloodshed. Meanwhile, immediately after this, back in Iceland, uh, both Ilugi and Onund have dreams of their sons, covered in blood, speaking verses of poetry, and reporting their deaths. Uh, dreams again. Mm-hmm. At the old thing, the fathers confront one another, and neither is willing to make any compensation for the other's loss. Gunlaug's father, Ilugi, believes he is the stronger case since his son was killed by treachery. And so he and his kin embark on a series of revenge attacks on Onan's extended family. Their revenge comes very quickly. Ilugi and his clan arrive at Mosfell and ambush Onan's family, capturing two men named Thorgrim and Bjorn when Onan and his sons hide in the church. They kill Bjorn, and they let Thorgrim go, after chopping off his foot, of course. <laughs> Which is a very interesting really punishment. Uh, it's not really gruesome, it's just kind of funny. I mean, it's just, it's just a terrible thing. You just chop the guy's foot off and say, alright, you can go. Off you go. <laughs> Hop along. Uh, now, that, that, that's, that's enough to satisfy Elugi, but Gunlaug's brother Hermund isn't content yet. I want to point out that all these killings are taking place because Elugi had a dream in which his son reported that he was badly treated in the duel. Well, he was honest about it. Well, okay. Uh, so, Harriman decides that more blood has to be spilled. He rides out to meet Onan's nephew, who is also named Hraven, and is the skipper of a ship. Uh, skipper Hraven is standing on shore. Nickname. What's that? What a clever nickname. Skipper Hraven? Uh, so, he's the, the skipper of a ship, so we'll call him Skipper Hraven. Uh, very, very smart. Well, when when you've got nicknames like Atlee the Short, I mean, <laughs> you know, these nicknames aren't always all that clever. Uh, Skipper Hraven is standing on shore talking with other merchants when Harriman rides through the crowd, spears Hraven through the torso, and gallops off. Have at you. Have at you. <laughs> <laughs> now, you don't see a lot of men conducting killings in a lance charge in the sagas, do you? Uh, maybe a candidate for best bloodshed there. Possibly, but probably not. Wow. Now, that ends the feud, and there's one more sad coda to the story. Helga's father marries her to another man. I like Helga's agency in this saga. She's just married yeah, off absolutely to Absolutely none. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting guy. that these romance sagas actually kind of strip away all of that 
social stuff wherein women actually have a voice in their own fates. Yeah. yeah. Most of the sagas we see women divorcing men, choosing to marry men. You think about Holgerth Longlegs in Yal Saga, who chooses yeah. one husband after another for herself. And yet in a romance saga, the romance we, is all about the men. And right? we, we assume that these are influenced in some way by continental romance literature. Right, which would make sense. Which makes sense that we are, we are disenfranchising these mm-hmm. women. They have no Absolutely power whatsoever. Right. Thank you, continental Europe. Right, because the uh, Icelandic traditions wherein female infants are exposed more often than male ones is so much better for women. <laughs> I guess that's a good point. <laughs> well, you know, but they if they survive, they have a good uh, – they they have some opportunity. Right, no, fair they, enough. Uh, but they not, can run not a Helga. farm. Not no. Helga because not her father's marrying her off. She is the swan and now the hawk has arrived. Ah, yes, and, and the hawk is? It's Thorkel Halkinson. Sure, why not? <laughs> Whoever he is, he's really not terribly important. He's just there to fulfill the uh, the obligations of the dream. Yes, yeah, the I end almost of the forgo- prophecy. I almost unhappily forgotten about the stupid prophecy. Exactly. Well, the problem here is that Helga is still pining for Gunlaug, and even though she's with Thorkel for some time and they have several children, she never really gets over Gunlaug's death. Mm-hmm. She eventually gets sick one night because she likes to spread out the cloak that Gunlaug has given her and stare at it longingly. And one night she just gets lovesick and kind of falls into her husband's arm and dies. Although I, I just imagine her husband sitting there watching her stare at this cloak. <laughs> well, we are told that he's a he's a good man. Yeah. Uh, and so he's part up with of his behavior. goodness. Yeah, part of his goodness is that he puts up with her mopiness over her dead lover. It's pretty sad. And then you go to bed to make children with her. <laughs> kind of sad. It's kind of a depressing ending. <laughs> no matter how you look at it, it really is. Although it's worth pointing out that uh, the saga begins with Helga and ends with Helga. So we've got a nice frame narrative here. Despite her lack of agency, she's the one that drives the whole thing. It's a real downer to end on, though. But fortunately, we're not going to let it end there. Because we've got judgments to pass. In our next episode. Right. So it looks like, I mean, just looking at the clock on the wall, that we spent enough time on this. that Somehow, astoundingly, Gunlaug's saga is going to have to be done in more than one part. Which, as as 1.11 Hrovenkels, I never would have imagined it deserved two episodes, but... I don't know how this happened. So we'll see you in the judgment section in part two of our Gunlog Saga episode. Bye for now. But Gunlog is still suffering from that head wound. Oh, yeah, your version is much better. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to delay and delay and delay as you make me feel worse about myself. <laughs> I already have low self-esteem, John. Do you? That's, that's exactly what I think about you. Yeah. <laughs>